on this day when we acknowledge uh, the sacrifices that people have made so that we could be where we are today. Um, We're reminded of how that reflects our God who sacrificed for us so that we could have the life that we enjoy with Jesus. So happy Memorial Day, more than just some time off, but a chance to remember uh, what it means to sacrifice so that others can have life. So happy Memorial Day, happy Sunday, happy summer, finally, right? We've been waiting for this for like nine months. So now we are actually able to go outside and realize how hot it is and then go sit in the air conditioner. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Fantastic. I don't know about you, but I have had the opportunity to mow my lawn twice now. And by twice, I don't mean twice this season. I mean, yesterday I had to mow my lawn twice because the grass was so high. Um, So if you've ever wondered who that person is in your neighborhood who is apparently doing the prairie restoration in their front yard, that would be me. Uh, So it's great to meet you. Uh, Thank you for being here on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend, especially if you are a guest with us this morning. If this is your first time here, you could be anywhere else and we wouldn't hold it against you, but you decided to be here and to spend time with us, and we are so excited to be able to spend this time with you. We are in a series right now, a four-week series, that we're calling 42 Seconds. And the idea of this series is that throughout the course of our day, we have any number of these little interactions with people. And each one of those interactions, no matter how small or how big, is important because it's an interaction with someone that God made and loves and has a plan for. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we see how he made the most of all of his interactions with people so that he could be a blessing to them and point them towards the one who loves them more than anything. And we love Jesus, and we want to be like him. So we want our interactions to be modeled after the interactions of Jesus. So what does it look like for us to treat people and interact with others the way that Jesus did? And now over the course of, these series, of this series, we're tracking along with a book called 42 Seconds, written by an author and a friend to many of us here at Alpine, Carl Medeiros. Carl Uh, has been here and spoken. He's written a number of books that we just love. And Carl sort of lays out his book in four different sections. And those are kind of the thoughts that we're adopting for the four different messages in this series. We're not preaching out of Carl's book, but we're taking the ideas that he brings out and we're looking at how those show up in the life of Jesus and what that means for us and how we interact with other people. So last week, our lead pastor, Dave, talked about this idea of being kind. Jesus was kind to people. He wasn't always nice, which is an interesting distinction to make, but he always operated with other people's best interests in mind. And in Jesus' conduct, we see a reflection of the character of God towards us, his kindness towards us. And if we have received God's kindness, then that means we have it to be able to show to other people. Now, how many of you have picked up a copy of 42 Seconds from the Orange Corner? You're tracking along with it. Awesome. Carl breaks out how to practice this idea of being kind in some really, like, this isn't rocket science kind of ways, right? It's like, this shouldn't be anything huge. These should be the tenets of, like, normal human decency. But someone had to write a book (laughs) to get us to pay attention to these things, right? And then you put them into practice, and it's like, people are off balance, You try to be kind to someone, like, say hi, acknowledge the waiter, talk to the kid, you call the waitress by name, and it's like you just rattled off her social security number. It's like, how do you know that? What do you, who are you? Tanya, it's on your name tag. 
It's like, oh, do you realize what's going on? It's like, oh, well, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Sorry. <laughs> it's weird. It's stuff that's so simple and makes so much sense, but is so rare and has such a big impact on other people's lives. And we just take a moment to acknowledge that they're a person and be kind to them. So we talked about that last week. We've been putting it into practice this week. And today we get to talk about this idea of being present. Now, if you haven't done so already, I'd encourage you after service, head to the orange corner, pick up a copy of 42 seconds. It's like 10 bucks. Find some people to talk about it with because it is well worth the experience. And in this section on being present, Carl's got some super practical, really helpful ways of how to put this idea into practice. But before we talk about how to do being present, we have to talk about what being present even means. Because this whole phrase, be present, like this is something that you see on like blogs or like canvas prints. It's like, just be present. It's like, thank you, sensei. What are you, what does that even mean? Before we talk about how to be present, we have to talk about what that actually entails. And so when we talk about being present, here's what we mean. Being present means that your mind and your emotions, and your physical body are all in the same place, at the same time, sharing in the same moment with another person. I'm going to say that again. Being present means that your mind, and your emotions, and your physical body are all in the same place, at the same time, sharing the same moment with another person. It's all of you right here, right now. It's not having your emotions wrapped up in something that happened to you earlier, having your mind concerned with something that might happen to you in the future while your body is standing in front of another person, completely vacant, when what that person needs is for someone to let them know that they're important and valuable and worth something. And when we bring all of us to where we are and share that experience with another person, we are communicating to them, you are worth being present for. That's what being present means. It's not rocket science, right? It's not a super complicated idea, and yet it seems to be something that's very, very hard to come across. You can probably count on one hand the number of interactions that you had with this week with someone that you could tell beyond a shadow of a doubt was right with you. I almost said all there, but that has connotations of like, eh, you're not all here. <laughs> but like someone who is fully present with you, you can probably count on one hand the number of people that you had without a doubt, this person is fully present with me right now. It's rare and it's becoming even more rare. We are partially everywhere and wholly nowhere. That was not the case with Jesus. We believe that he spent at least three years on this planet being able to be fully present in every moment with other people. He lived that out. Nothing seemed to get in the way of that. But here's what's interesting. When we talk about how Jesus did that, there's something that happened early on in what we have recorded of Jesus' life that was kind of a defining moment in his ability to be present with other people. And this event took the form of a conversation in the middle of nowhere, with a very unlikely conversation partner. And it was over the course of this exchange that Jesus encountered three obstacles, three temptations, 
that would have short-circuited his ability to be present with other people during his ministry. And they're the same three temptations that come up in our interactions with other people and prevent us from being able to be fully present with them. So here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, we are going to talk about this event from the life of Jesus and what it looked like for him to overcome these three obstacles, these three temptations that he encountered. We're going to talk about how those three temptations show up in our interactions with other people. And then we're going to talk about the key of being present with other people as it was exhibited by Jesus. What does it take for us to be fully present with others based on how Jesus was able to be fully present with others? Sound good? All right, cool. I would love it if we could pray before we dig into this and ask God to open us up to everything he has for us this morning. Lord, we're here. And as we sang earlier, have your way in us, Lord. Teach us to be more like you because we love you. And we want to be with you and we want to be a part of what you're doing in this world, God. So in this moment, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to everything that you have in store for us. Help us to hear your voice clearly and give us the courage to do absolutely everything you would call us into. We're here because we love you and we thank you for loving us. And so it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want you guys to picture in your minds that you are standing in the middle of this sprawling, green, and vibrant landscape of rolling hills as far as the eye can see. There's a couple of clouds in the bright blue sky. The grass is soft underneath your feet, and it's quiet, that peaceful kind of quiet, where you can almost hear the grass rustling in the cool breeze that's on your face. Take a moment to just stand there. And now, look around into that bright blue sky and start taking away those clouds one by one until there's none left. The shade's gone. And then dial up the intensity on the sun and the feel of its warmth and its heat on your hair and your face. That cool wind turns into this hot, thirsty breeze that's drying out your mouth and your lips and you feel that soft grass underneath your feet become crunchy and withered and all of a sudden you look around and you're standing in the middle of this landscape of clay-colored gravel and sun-bleached rocks and you look out over the horizon and all you see is this crisscrossing of ravines and canyons over the landscape looking like shattered glass and that silence that was once so peaceful has become this stifling expectant quiet where you don't know what's going to happen next, and it echoes out through the horizon. This is the wilderness of Judea. And it's where Jesus found himself at the beginning of Matthew 4. And he's not out here by accident. He's alone in the desert, not because someone dropped him off there or he got lost. He's there for a reason. He's there because God told him to go there. And for a reason that is one of the most unusual reasons to tell anyone to go anywhere. And we read the story about this in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 and 2. This is Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, starting in verse 1. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. Now, this is a very strange place for Jesus to find himself. At the end of Matthew 3, in that chapter, Matthew 3, right before this, we have recorded this pivotal moment in Jesus' life when he goes to be baptized by his cousin John. He arrives at the Jordan River, he's baptized. The heavens open up, God's spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and there's this booming voice that rings out that says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. 30 years, Jesus has waited for this moment. He sees the heavens open, the spirit descends, the voice rings out, and the first thing he hears, but the spirit inside him is saying, Go away from everything you know and everyone around you and head out to the wilderness to be alone. And someone will come to meet you. Satan. Jesus heads out into the wilderness. No food, no shelter, no company for 40 days. And 40 days isn't just an idea. 40 days is like seven weeks. So if you didn't have another meal between now and the 4th of July, you miss all the picnics and parties and everything, and then take it on another couple days, that's about 40 days. I don't know about you, I get hungry if I don't eat for 40 minutes. (laughs) And so in this moment, Jesus is out, there's no food, he's been out there for 40 days and 40 nights, and just in case we can't connect the dots, Matthew makes sure to tell us he was very hungry. Thank you, Matthew. Jesus is out, he's alone, he's in a posture of weakness, and this is the moment when Satan decides to confront him after 30 years. It's a matchup, Jesus and Satan in the desert, three rounds, three temptations that Satan is going to bring against Jesus to tempt him to misuse his sonship. Satan doesn't come denying that Jesus is the son of God. That would be too obvious. He comes and plays a different game. He's trying to find out what kind of son Jesus is going to be. And so he brings him these temptations. The first temptation that we have is the temptation of appetite. In verses three, verse three, we read this. During that time, the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. This temptation, Satan is teasing out this tension between Jesus' divine power and authority as the Son of God and his humanity, the needs that are common to all people as created beings. He says, you have this legitimate need. You're hungry, Jesus. Why don't you use your divine power to turn these stones into carbs. Come on, you're hungry. You have the power, you have the need, just do it. Jesus responds though. He says no, because the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that he was not given power and authority to leverage it for his own gain. Yes, he has a legitimate human need, 
And he has a legitimate claim to the power and authority of godliness. But he was not given that authority so that he could use it for his own advantage. He was given that to serve. And so Jesus responds, man doesn't live on bread alone. Man doesn't live on his own ability to meet his own desires and needs. Man lives on the commands of the God who spoke us into existence and has promised to meet our needs in the time and the way that he knows is best. To overcome this temptation of appetite, Jesus chooses to trust the God who has promised to sustain him and meet his needs. Jesus won, Satan zero. The second temptation. Moving on from this temptation of appetite, Satan now brings the temptation of approval. Verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point in the temple, And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. One moment Jesus is standing in the wilderness surrounded by these stones being tempted to turn them to bread and the next he's standing on the top of the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. It's a tower on the south east corner of the temple complex where heralds would climb and blow a trumpet so that the entire city could hear it. From the top of this tower, situated on the wall of the temple court, right next to the Kidron Valley on the east side of the city, from the top of the temple, or from the top of the tower to the bottom of the valley, it's 450 feet. That's about 35 stories. If you've ever been to Chicago and you've stood on Michigan Avenue Bridge, Looking north, over on your left, you'd see the white terracotta building known as the Wrigley Building. It's about 35 stories tall, just shy of 450 feet. Just for a sense of scale of where Jesus is standing right now. There was this rumor going on in Jerusalem that we have recorded in later rabbinic writings that when the Messiah appeared, he would declare himself as the Son of God by taking a flying leap off the top of the tower plummeting down to the bottom and landing without a scratch. That was how the Messiah would reveal himself. Satan knows this. And so he brings this to Jesus. Throw yourself off here. Can you imagine the crowd that would gather if you survived a leap from this? You can imagine the buzz that would be created of someone who survived a swan dive off the top of the Wrigley building. Now you add a pseudo-prophecy into the mix and you kind of have an idea of what Satan is suggesting. Jesus, take the jump. God's promised to protect you, right? He's even got scripture to back it up. He's quoting from Psalm 91, which is all about God's protection for those that he loves and who love him. Should be a no-brainer, right? Gain everybody's attention? They'll bow down to you for surviving all of this? Just take the leap. But Jesus responds, quoting again from the Hebrew scriptures. He says, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Jesus knows Psalm 91. He knows the game that Satan is playing. But here's what he also knows. He knows that God's promises aren't to be played with. God doesn't promise to protect his people so that they will intentionally put themselves in harm's way just to show off. Because God's promises are always related to his purposes. And drawing attention to yourself, not one of them. So Jesus says, God isn't somebody to test. God is somebody to trust. 
And I know that because God is with me, I don't have to take a flying leap off this temple to gain other people's approval because I already have my father's approval. No thanks. Jesus two, Satan zero. So this is it, the final pitch. This is the final round. And we have to remember that Jesus, Satan knew that Jesus was going to be here. That's why he showed up. And Satan knew what he was dealing with. He's talking about the Son of God. He's not denying that Jesus is the Son of God. So you have to keep in mind that Satan is bringing his A-game here. This is the best that he has to offer. This is the last chance, the last temptation. Jesus has overcome the temptation of appetite. He's overcome the temptation of approval. Finally, is the temptation of ambition. Verses 8 and 9 say this. Next... The devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. One moment, Jesus is standing on the pinnacle of the tower in the temple of Jerusalem. The next moment, whether physically or in a vision, we're not exactly sure, but Jesus is standing on the top of a tall mountain, looking out and seeing all of the kingdoms and the peoples of the world in all of their splendor. And this was an actual thing that happened in history. So 30 AD, world history, Jesus would have seen the glory of Rome. He would have seen the splendor of the Han Dynasty in eastern China, of the Mayans in Central America, of the tribes of Northern Europe and Africa and North America. These are real things that he's seeing. And Satan presents them in all of their goodness and glory and beauty. But Jesus knows this, that right beneath the surface of all that show, is brokenness and hurt and sin and injustice and a world that has turned its back on God and needs God to come get them because that's why he was sent. Satan doesn't go there. He's happy with the front. See all this, Jesus? Let me parade in front of you all the things that you could have if you just say no to this mission, this God thing that you're on. And bow down to me. Because Satan's already proved that he knows the scriptures. Satan knows that all of these kingdoms and all of their glory will already belong to the Son of God. But he also knows that the scripture talk about the path to that inheritance for God's Son is a path of suffering and of darkness and of betrayal and ultimately death. And Satan says, hey, you can have everything without any of that. All you have to do is turn away from God And bow the knee to me. But Jesus knows that without his suffering, there can be no healing for us. Jesus knows that without his sacrifice, there can be no forgiveness. And he knows that without his death, there can be no life for the people that God has sent him into this world to save. And he knows that to turn his back on the Father is to cut off the relationship that he loves most in all the world and nothing is worth turning away from worship of God and service to others under God as his son and so he says we're done here we read this in verse 10 get out of here Satan Jesus told him for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only I will not forsake 
the work that God has given me to do. I will not forsake my relationship with my Father for anything that you offer me because I am not defined by your definition of success. I'm defined by worship and devotion to my Father. You can leave now. And Satan does. Verse 11. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Three temptations. Jesus overcomes each one of them. And he overcomes each one of them by going back to the same truth. And it's the truth that we need to grab onto today. What allowed Jesus to overcome the temptations that Jesus presented to him was his awareness of God's presence with him. Because remember, it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness in the first place. It was the Holy Spirit that descended on him in the form of a dove at his baptism. It was that same Holy Spirit that inspired the writings in the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is quoting from. It was that same Spirit that was with him this entire time, giving him exactly what he needed to be able to stand in the face of this temptation. Because God's presence was with Jesus, he was not a slave to his own appetites, but was able to trust the God who was able to meet his needs in the exact way that they needed to be met and in the proper time. Because God's presence was with Jesus, he was able to say, my approval isn't determined by what people think of me. They can praise me or persecute me, but my approval comes from God's presence with me, who loves me enough to be with me. And Jesus was able to say no to the temptation of ambition because he knew that God's presence in him had way bigger plans than Satan had in store. And neither success nor failure from Satan's perspective was going to change that. It was God's presence with Jesus that allowed him to overcome these temptations, come out of the wilderness and then began three years of his ministry being present with others. Not choked by his own appetites, by his own sense of approval, or an ungodly ambition. But to go into his interactions to pour out and to serve. It was God's presence that allowed Jesus to overcome those temptations so that he could be present with others. But how do those temptations show up in our own lives? Talk about these three things, appetite, approval, ambition. We see these in Jesus' experience, but these are true in our experience as well. How does appetite show up? Appetite shows up in our craving and our desire for comfort. This is a very human desire. It is natural. It's instinctual for us to move towards things that are enjoyable and to move away from things that are not enjoyable. But that desire for comfort gets in the way of our ability to be fully present with other people. Let me give you an example. Romans 12, 15, Paul is talking to the Roman church, and he writes these letters, and he writes these words to say, this is what it looks like for you to live your life before God, loving other people. And he says, mourn with those who mourn, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, I don't know when the last time was that you got to sit with somebody in their mourning, and in their grief, and in their sadness, and in their loss, but the last word you would use to describe that is comfortable. 
That's why when we find ourselves in these situations, we're so quick to offer advice or answers or basically anything that makes us not feel helpless and makes it somehow be a little bit more comfortable than to just sit with someone in their mess. Our desire for comfort short circuits our ability to be present with other people and allow our minds and our emotions and our physical bodies to be in that moment of pain with them. That doesn't come naturally. Our desire for comfort will short circuit our ability to mourn with those who mourn, but it also short circuits our ability to rejoice with those who rejoice because it's really hard to celebrate something that someone else has when it's something that you really wish you had too. Let me give you an example of this. This happened this week for me. I was on a phone call with a buddy of mine, and he was talking about everything. We were catching up and what's going on in his life, and he started sharing about this thing coming up for him, which, like, if I have a short list of things I would ask Santa, the thing that he was talking about was on this list. And it's a short list. That's why I called it a short list. And so it's not much, but it's like, oh, no. That's the thing that I want my thing to be. He's talking about this thing, and I'm like, oh, there it is. And in that moment, it would have been really easy to say, oh, I wish I had that. Let me tell you about how much I wish I had that. That's the thing that I really want. Let me tell you how much I want that. It would have been really easy to turn his rejoicing into my mourning and to force the conversation to be about me. But here's what makes the difference between being able to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those, with those who rejoice or not, is the ability to go back to this idea that because God is present with us, we can trust him to meet our needs in the way that they need to be met and in the proper timing that they need to be met. And if we can take that and trust it to God, then we can go into our interactions with other people with open hands to be with them where they're at. Because God's presence is with us. We trust him to meet our needs and can overcome the temptation of appetite in our interactions with other people. What about the temptation to approval? This is one that's probably a little bit more common and one that doesn't take as much explanation, but it's this desire for esteem, to be thought well of by others, which again is a very natural human desire. We want people to like us, right? But here's how this shows up in our interactions with other people. When we care too much about what people think, one of four things happens. One, we boast and try to make ourselves look better in another person's eyes, or we ridicule. We cut other people down so that we're the ones that stand out. We flatter people and say only the good and best things about them, even if they're not technically true, because we want that person to like us. Or we just don't say anything at all because we don't want to make things weird. We want to avoid awkwardness. We don't want to look dumb. And so we stay silent. But each one of those comes from this desire for other people's approval of us. Jesus was able to overcome this temptation to seek other people's approval by leaning into the fact that because God was with him, he already had the Father's approval. It didn't matter what other people thought of him. Now, that doesn't mean that he was careless or flippant or didn't care about other people. It was just, he was secure. Like, I don't, I don't need that. Because I know that I have my father's approval. The key for us to overcome this temptation of other people's approval and this desire for esteem is to acknowledge the presence of God with us and the approval that he has for us or else he wouldn't be with us. 
We have been accepted by God because of the work of Jesus, and now we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And if that's the case, then we are free to go into our interactions with other people, not seeking approval from them, but to go in our interactions looking to bless and to serve like Jesus did. It's God's presence with us that allows us to overcome the temptation to approval because we already have the Father's approval. Finally, this temptation to ambition. This is the temptation for success, for accomplishment. And it's putting a task or a dream, maybe even a good thing that you want to do, and chasing after that to such a degree that it actually starts to hurt other people. Because here's what, hap- here's what happens when we are driven by a sense of ambition in our interactions with other people. One of two things happens. People become tools or obstacles. If you can help me accomplish the thing that I want to do, you're a tool. I'm going to interact with you and manipulate our interaction in such a way that I can get what I need from you and then move on. Or, if you're not a tool, you're an obstacle. If you're not going to help me get to the place that I want to go, I'm either going to cut this conversation off as soon as possible, or I'm just going to ignore you altogether. We're just going to not even go there. Because you're getting in the way. Either one of these, turning people into a tool or an obstacle, is the tantamount expression of objectification. And you might be able to say that for all three of these, appetite, approval, and ambition, but it's especially so in ambition where you become so driven by a thing that you stop caring about the people around you. And eventually you stop even noticing them. That's not how Jesus lived his life. Yeah, Jesus had a purpose. He had a mission that he was dedicated to. But he was able to go into his interactions with other people to love them, and serve them because he knew that his identity, his value, wasn't based on other people's assessments of his success or failure. The world's definition of ambition didn't hold any weight with him because he knew, I'm here to serve, I'm here to love. It was actually the clarity of his mission and this clarity around who God was that allowed him to bless other people, not run them over. And it was God's presence with him, the character of God inside him to look into the eyes of another person and say, you matter. So here I am. Where are you at? Because God's presence was with Jesus, he was able to resist the temptation of ambition because he knew that he was not defined by other people's versions of success or failure, but he was defined by worship, his relationship with God, and service, his relationship with the people around him. The common element of all three of these temptations, of what it means to overcome them, is a greater awareness of God's presence in our lives. We believe that if we have made the decision to follow Jesus, if we have trusted in him, then God's spirit, God's presence is in us, leading us, guiding us, directing us, filling us up, so that we don't have to go into our interactions with other people trying to make up for a deficit or a lack We go in with this source of life inside of us to pour out into other people because God's presence is inside of us. But these three temptations, 
They're hard to get over. They might not show up in our interactions with other people quite as spectacularly as they did in Jesus' showdown with Satan in the desert. But they show up in our interactions nonetheless. But here's what we don't want to happen. We don't want to take this list of three things. Okay, uh, appetite, approval, ambition. Got it. Got to work on those. I'm going to get out of the store and I'm going to you know, try to not be those things. That's not, that's not the point. Because here's what's true. Those temptations are going to come. And when they do come, they are an opportunity for us to acknowledge and embrace the presence of God with us to overcome those temptations. This is God taking the moments when Satan would try to derail us and actually drawing us closer to himself. Not that we pursue temptation, not that we say, let me get as much temptation as I can, but when those temptations come, and they will come, it's an opportunity for us to pause and aware of the temptation to press into a greater awareness of God's presence with us. But if we walk out of these doors and try to do everything, we're going to do nothing. That's actually one of the best ways to make sure that you do absolutely nothing after a Sunday is to try to do everything. So here's what we're going to do as we're sort of wrapping this whole idea together. I want you to pick one. One of these three temptations. Appetite, approval, or ambition. What do you feel like is the one that shows up the most often in your interactions with other people? Which one do you feel like is the one that derails you the most or has the biggest negative impact on other people? Which one of these, as you're sitting here, do you feel God's spirit inside of you saying, this is something that I want to show you more of me with regard to? Because that's what this is. This isn't about us trying to make up for a lack of character. This isn't about us trying to put Carl's book into practice. This is about us becoming more like Jesus through a greater awareness of God's spirit inside of us. We want more of Jesus and so every time one of these temptations comes this week, it's an opportunity for us to say, Jesus, what does the presence of God mean for me in this moment so that I can be present with other people? So I want you to pick one, appetite, approval, or ambition. And I'm gonna ask us to raise our hands on which ones you picked. And we're gonna pray for each other. I'm gonna pray over you guys that God would give you a greater awareness of where these temptations show up in your interactions this week so that he can show you more of himself and allow you to be more present with other people this week. Because before we do all the practical stuff, we need to make sure that our hearts are right before God or this is nothing more than a self-help program, in all honesty. But to press into the presence of God so that we can follow Jesus' example and be present with other people, that's something worth working towards. That's something worth embracing. That's something worth opening ourselves up to and pressing into uncomfortable places in. As I was sitting up front and we were singing this song, Reckless Love, and talking about what does it look like for God to love us? And we talked about God having his way in us. I was, I was filled with this sense of if we're really gonna press into this, we're gonna end up in some really uncomfortable places because Jesus went to some really uncomfortable places. And if we want to follow his example, if we want to be like him, that's going to happen. 
And there was this fear. There was this anxiety that started to rise up in me. I'm just like, I don't want that. I don't want that pain. I don't want that suffering. I don't even know what that looks like, but it scares me. And in the next moment, I felt like God was just wrapping his arms around me. And he was saying, I'm with you. And if I'm with you, you don't have to be afraid of that. And maybe that's a word for just me. Maybe that's a word for us as a church. But if we decide to press into this, to press into Jesus, we're going to be taken to some uncomfortable places. But what we're going to find in those moments is a greater love and dependence and intimacy with this God who has chosen to send his son so that we could have a new relationship with him. He's with us and it's worth it. So I'm going to ask you right now, which of these temptations do you feel like God is putting on your heart as an opportunity for you to press into his presence with you? Appetite. This desire for comfort that keeps us from going to those uncomfortable places and into that suffering with other people because it's uncomfortable. I want to pray for you, Jesus. Thank you for the example that you set in the way that you lived your life to be with other people, that you chose to leave the glories and the comforts of heaven to step into this wreck that we've made. I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters who raised their hand a greater awareness of your presence with them and your love for them. And because you're with them, they can trust you to meet those needs for comfort and provision and those things that drive us and so much of our behavior that they would be able to trust you and in trusting you find that they can be more present with other people and experience the joy of loving them like they have been loved by Jesus. Amen. How many of you in this room, it was approval. Approval was what came up. This was the big one in second service too. God, I pray over the men and women in this room who identify this as a temptation that comes up in their interactions with others. God, I pray that you would fill them with such an acute awareness of your approval and love and joy over them that you hold them in your arms and you rejoice over them. As a parent rejoices over a child, Lord, I pray that they would hear the words of your song over them. And from a place of knowing that your presence and your approval is on them, that they would be able to go into their relationships with other people and show them how much they're loved. Amen. How many of you, ambition was what showed up you're driven. God is putting things on your heart, and they may even be good things, but they can get in the way of actually seeing and loving people. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for these brothers and sisters that you have blessed with drive and dreams. Lord, I pray that the desire and the dream to love you and serve others would continue to grow in their heart and dawn like the sun over the horizon. And as it does, there would be warmth and life that comes into their souls and that they would see in that light the men and women who are around them 
who need to hear from you. I pray that you would remove from them the pressure of this world's definition of success, of its fear of failure. And I pray that you would break those chains and give them the freedom to love others with the reckless love that you have for us, regardless of the cost to themselves, but that they would be able to say no to the ambitions of this world and say yes to a deeper relationship with you and a deeper love for others. Amen. This week, each time one of those temptations comes up, it's an opportunity to pause and celebrate the difference that God's presence inside us makes. So I pray that this week, every time that happens, that you would have a greater awareness of God's presence with you That's a starting point. But that you would be able to grow into this deeper awareness of God's presence so that you can be present with other people. And we're looking forward to hearing the stories of what God does in and through us as we try to be more like Jesus. We love you guys so much. Have a great week. Thank you for being here. Happy Sunday. We'll see you next time.